Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Academic Life. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Dr. Elizabeth Rule, who is the author of Indigenous DC, Native Peoples and the Nation's Capital. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rule. Thank you so much for inviting me on, Dr. Gessler. It's really a pleasure to be able to speak with you today and to share a little bit about this project. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to learn about this project from you. Before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Absolutely. Um, So like you said, my name is Dr. Elizabeth Rule. I'm a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation. Um, And I'm currently an assistant professor of critical race, gender, and culture studies at American University, living and working in Washington, D.C. You tell us in the book a bit about how you first came to D.C. Would you share some of that path with us, please? Absolutely. Um, You know, really much of my own story about how I came to DC um, informs my interest in this project and many of the goals that I I hope that this book ultimately achieves. Um, So when I was a graduate student doing my PhD program, I spent um, multiple summers actually coming down to Washington DC in order to work for my tribe and intern for the um, federal government, for the Department of the Interior, which oversees indigenous affairs. And it was really important to me, um, first of all, that I had the opportunity and the experience to step out a little bit from the ivory tower space and the academic sphere and spend those summers, um, you know, working with indigenous people on indigenous issues, you know, um, towards something that I felt was ultimately for the benefit of Indian country at large. Um, and, you know, fast forward several years later, um, my first professional experience outside of my PhD program was then as first the assistant director and later the director of the Center for Indigenous Politics and Policy at Amer- or at George Washington University, excuse me, um, also located here in Washington, D.C. And 
you know, I found myself on then the other side, right? Whereas I had previously been um, a, a student who came here for the summers. I now was a, you know, academic and an administrator that was bringing um, indigenous students like me to Washington, D.C. for an academic experience. And as part of their either summer or spring semester with the program, um, with the Native American political leadership program that we run, um, what we did was, you know, connect them with courses that I taught and things like, you know, federal Indian law, um, courses on governance, um, and we also connected them with internships, either on Capitol Hill or in a native serving nonprofit organization that's oftentimes headquartered here in our nation's capital. Um, but I, as I was doing that work, um, you know, it, it came to my attention and my awareness that, you know, several of my indigenous students, and this was a program that served American Indian students from the lower 48 states, as well as Alaska Native students and Native Hawaiian students, and in some cases, First Nation students from Canada as well. Um, you know, it, it came to my awareness that Washington, D.C. could be a very difficult place for them. And in many ways, that's what prompted the project. And, um, you know, I'm happy to talk about that if, if we want to go there or, you know, we can go there later if you want. I do want to go there in a minute. Um, early in the book, you say that your dad inspired you to serve your community and fearlessly advocate for Indian country. And your mother taught you to write and always entertained your intellectual curiosity. Did you know at a young age that you wanted to go to college and to graduate school? Can you tell us a bit about your path there? Sure, sure. Um, well, I, I always knew that I wanted to go to college and that I wanted to go to college with the goal of preparing myself um, for a career of service, right? Um, and a career that, you know, brought me into community with Native peoples and that worked collectively toward many of our shared issues. Um, and even though there are you know, 574 federally recognized tribes in the United States. And there, of course, are additional non-federally recognized indigenous communities, um, such as, you know, Native Hawaiians, for example, but also um, several, you know, state recognized or unrecognized uh, tribal communities as well. Um, you know, we have some shared issues and some some shared goals as well um, around things like tribal sovereignty, the ability to self-govern, um, the ability to take care of our communities, right? And to preserve our culture, preserve our traditional knowledge, um, you know, take care and steward the land, right, that, that we live on and live in community and relationship with. Um, and so in that sense, right, I knew that higher education was going to be a pathway toward that end. And so it was very much um, a means to an end for me. You're exactly right um, that my father is an attorney and he exclusively represents um, tribal nations in his practice. And I was very inspired by that growing up as well. And for a long time, I saw law 
as you know, the way to make that positive impact um, for Native communities. And so for a long time, I I thought maybe I would be a lawyer, maybe I would be an attorney. Um, But then during college, I had some really incredible mentors. And those mentors opened my eyes, really. Um, You know, they exposed me to histories and theories and, and scholarship that really fundamentally changed the way I saw the world and the way the world works. And um, that that was very exciting to me and very illuminating to me. And I decided I wanted to be like them um, and, and, you know, give it back, if you will, to the next generation of students coming after me. And so that's exactly what I've done. Um, I went actually straight from undergrad into a PhD program and um, now, of course, I'm on the other side as an academic. And that's one of the reasons why mentorship is still such an important issue for me, because it was really life changing for me. Um, so, you know, uh, also to bring the law back into it, I never fully abandoned um, the law because, again, we have so many people, um, you know, like my father, but others as well, um, who are making that positive change in our communities through law. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm interested in doing things like legal history, studying public policy for Native communities, um, and bringing that that angle into my interdisciplinary analysis. Hearing what you've shared so far, the app that you created and the book that you wrote seem like a, of course, it ties all of these things together. But at the time we start a project, we seldom know where it's going to go or how big it's going to become. Can you take us back to the origins of the project and how you transitioned from the mobile app that you created to the book? Sure. Um, So like I said, to set the scene, right? Um, I was working at uh, the Center for Indigenous Politics and Policy and leading that, um, heading the Native American Political Leadership Program and bringing our Native students in. And as they were telling me, my my students, um, as they were telling me that Washington, D.C. was a difficult place for them, you know, I was hearing about um, their experiences of feeling alone in Washington, D.C., right? Um, And a very different type of loneliness than I think, um, you know, every student perhaps to some extent would have when they go and do an academic program. So, you know, I'm talking about students who in many cases had never been away from their communities, right? Or who had never lived in a predominantly non-Native community. Um, And I'm talking about students who in some cases were coming from urban areas, but in some cases were coming from extremely rural areas. And so there, there was that transition. Um, but it was, it was much deeper, right? And it was about things like seeing, um, you know, the dictionary defined racial slur used to define native people that was being celebrated in Washington, DC as the football team name, right? Um, And it was being, in many cases, for the first time, the only Native person in the office where they were interning and even being on campus, right, Um, outside of their cohort, you know, in many cases they were living with or just interacting with 
you know, almost entirely non-native students. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to really set out and make sure that my students knew that Washington, D.C. has a very rich and very deep and very longstanding history of an ongoing presence of Native advocates here in our nation's capital. Um, And so to that end, in 2019, I created a mobile application called the Guide to Indigenous D.C., And the Guide to Indigenous DC is a free and publicly accessible mobile application. It's available on Android as well as Apple or iOS platforms. And um, it's, it's free and public facing. And I specifically designed it so that my students would have something that was easy, right? An easy educational resource that would tell them, right, about Washington DC as a native place. And when I'm talking about DC as a native place, I'm talking about, um, of course, the indigenous peoples who call Washington DC their traditional ancestral homelands. Um, But I'm also talking about the, you know, decades and decades long history of native people coming to Washington DC to do precisely the kind of advocacy work that my students were engaged with, right? And even to some extent that I'm engaged with as a non-Native person, um, or, you know, as a Native person who's not Indigenous to this place is what I mean. Um, You know, coming here because it's the nation's capital, because this is where so many of the changes that we see across the country are made. Um, and, and I wanted them to know that, you know, they weren't isolated, they weren't alone, they weren't, you know, by themselves as they stepped out into this sometimes uncomfortable experience, but really um, they were following in so many generations of ancestral footsteps that came here before them. One of the things you point out in the book is that as you were creating this mapping project and taking the students out actually with you uh, using the app, you became very aware that they were also leaving their footprints. Yes. Do you want to talk a bit about the ongoing dominant notion that Native culture and history is past tense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So you know, even like what I just said, right, Um, how important it is to understand and learn about, you know, the generations who have come before to this place. Um, A major point in the book is having people understand that when we talk about Native history, we're not just talking about the past. We're very much talking about the present And indeed, we're talking about an indigenous future as well. And so, um, you know, thinking about those students who, you know, now I don't necessarily work with them because I I have a different job at American University now, but I still have um, students who are native and non-native. And I also engage more with members of the public at this point, Um, you know, as part of that ongoing process, right, as we have a continuation of Native youth, our next generation of tribal leaders who come here. Um, for example, I just met with a cohort of Champions for Change who were coming to D.C. 
through the Center for Native American Youth, which is located here in Washington. Um, you know, as all of those people continue to come here, they are leaving their own imprint here. And they're coming here to have their voices heard and to share their views, to share their experiences, to shape a better Indigenous future. I think that's something that um, we're all deeply concerned about and, and you know, are actionizing through our travels and journeys to and through this space that we call Washington, D.C. Um, and you're absolutely right. You know, when we extrapolate that and we think about, you know, what is this going to be like down the line? Um, you know, for the next generation, the next cohort of students, they're all looking to the people who have come before as well. And so in that respect, um, you know, it, it's a never ending stream and we're part of this ongoing indigenous presence here in Washington, DC. And, um, you know, to that end, the book is as much concerned with an indigenous past as it is with an indigenous present, but it's also um, thinking through and, you know, trying to do work for an indigenous future as well. You created the app for the D.C. area. Uh, D.C. is very much uh, part of a larger uh, area that also includes Baltimore and, and parts of Virginia as well. There's a lot of fluidity in that area. And you created other guides, um, one for Baltimore specifically. Do you want to talk about what led to uh, doing that? Sure, absolutely. Um, so the Guide to Indigenous D.C., um, was created in 2019 and launched in 2019. Um, and after it launched, you know, I was really, really pleased to see the broad support that came out for um, the project, you know, and I learned about um, non-Native folks, right, tourists who were using it, um, tribal leaders, right, who were coming to the area for conferences and advocacy work, who were utilizing it. Um, I learned about, you know, K through 12 teachers who were incorporating it into their curriculum or, you know, into their thinking about developing their, their course lessons. And so with that in mind, then um, I, I decided that this was a really great intervention tool. And so I expanded the Guide to Indigenous DC to a broader umbrella project called the, the Guide to Indigenous Lands Project. Um, and through the Guide to Indigenous Lands Project, I've then since also created um, a Guide to Indigenous Baltimore and a Guide to Indigenous Maryland. The Guide to Indigenous Baltimore was a partnership between myself and a colleague friend of mine, Dr. Ashley Minner, who is now um, a curator at the National Museum of the American Indian. And she's Lumbee. Um, she's from Baltimore, from the Baltimore area. And she has this really great project on um, oral history and, you know, recovering um, indigenous sites throughout Baltimore. And so, you know, we partnered up with her oral history work and her work with local elders there. And um, the 
you know, the literal walking tours that she was leading, really doing this amazing on the ground work. And my experience creating these mobile applications, um, and we collaborated to amplify that work and make it, you know, more widely accessible, more broadly accessible. Um, and then shortly after that, I was then approached by um, the Prince George's County Memorial Library System to create a statewide guide to Indigenous Maryland, highlighting sites of Indigenous significance across the state of Maryland. And so um, we we launched that um as well. And so all of those are out. They're all fully standalone mobile applications. Again, they're free. They're designed for people who are familiar with indigenous subject material, as well as folks who may know nothing about these places or about native history, about native issues. Um, they're, they're really designed to be educational. Um, so that's a little bit about how the you know, the app project, the Guide to Indigenous Lands project has expanded and is continuing to expand. Um, and then, of course, most recently, the latest development is that I, I transformed the Guide to Indigenous Lands, um, Guide to Indigenous DC app into, of course, a, a full-length manuscript. And in the book, Indigenous DC, Native Peoples and the Nation's Capital, you take us through a number of sites. You point out that they seldom have plaques. They seldom make other types of guidebooks. And yet they are there and they are significant. And they are something that you try to take your students to see. What is one of the favorite sites that you discuss in the book? Right. Um, so one of my absolutely favorite sites is going to be the Spirit of Haida Gwaii Sculpture, um, which sits in Washington, D.C., downtown, um, outside of the Canadian Embassy. And the Spirit of Haida Gwaii sculpture um, is considered Bill Reed's masterpiece. And Bill Reed um, is an internationally acclaimed Haida artist uh, based out of Canada. And, um, you know, his work is just really incredible. And so we have this masterpiece work, right? Um, right downtown, it's outside, it's on public view. And there's a really, um, you know, I think telling story about how that place came onto my radar. And it was that I first traveled to Vancouver, actually to attend um, a NISA conference, Native American and Indigenous Studies Conference. And um, I was in the Vancouver International Airport, and I saw the counterpoint to that sculpture there in the airport, but I didn't know about the one in Washington, D.C. yet. And so, you know, I see this incredible sculpture. It's, it's massive, right? It's huge, and it's you know, such a beautiful depiction of various figures from Haida, um, spiritual belief and cultural tradition. Um, and they're all sort of together in this canoe on this canoe journey. And so I'm standing there reading the plaque and taking pictures of this amazing artwork. And I read that there's also a counterpoint in Washington, D.C., and that that sculpture was located less than a mile away from where I was living in downtown 
at that time. And so to me, that was so eye-opening and illuminating because, um, you know, it took me traveling right from the East Coast to the West Coast and across a national border, right? I had to leave the country um, to learn about something that was effectively in my own backyard. And so in addition to being a truly majestic artwork um, that everybody should go and look at when they're here in Washington, D.C. Um, it also, for me, you know, was so eye-opening as a researcher, as somebody who was doing this work, um, you know, and, and it's so clearly exemplified the issue, right, which is that we have these sites in Washington, D.C., these sites of indigenous significance um, that are here they're, you know, fully um, incredible, right? They're awe-inspiring. They're amazing. But they just don't get the attention and a light shined on them in the way that they should. Um, and, and so that's uh, got to be one of my absolute favorite sites of, of the ones that are included in the book as well as in the app. When we go to cultural and significant sites, and we know a lot about them, sometimes it can be really painful to see the publicly available misinformation that is about it. Is there a site that you either have in the book or that you take your students to uh, where you've been able to do some of that healing work of clearing up the misconceptions? Sure. Um Absolutely. So, you know, there are several sites um, included in the book, as well as in the app, of course, that, um, you know, just have no form of public commemoration, right? There's, there's no sign um, commemorating some of the real landmark um, indigenous activist events that have unfolded in Washington, D.C., for example, um, and there's not always, you know, a sign or a placard, um, explaining some of the architecture that we see in Washington, DC. Um, and so, you know, one additional site that, um, is really interesting to me is going to be Dumbarton Bridge. So Dumbarton Bridge is famous for being a curved bridge. Um, it has sort of an architectural um, feature that's made it famous, but it connects the Calorama and Georgetown neighborhoods here. And if you're walking on top of the bridge, um, you'll see these two life-size buffalo sculptures on either side of the bridge. And it's only if you pass under the bridge, which is typically only accessible by driving, um, you'll then see, you know, more than 50 times, um, you know, the replication of this, you know, native man's head, right? His, his likeness um, all along the underside of this bridge more than 50 times. And, you know, when we, learn about the history, right, of that bridge, um, it very much replicates the tradition of the appropriation of indigenous imagery. And, um, you know, we learned that that bridge was designed to use these quote unquote 
Western American motifs, right? So um, the native person space, um, the buffaloes, and that was in an attempt to celebrate manifest destiny. And um, how do buffalo and native people become synonymous with manifest destiny? Well, you know, it was thought that as the nation expanded, um, that indigenous people, you know, were fully conquered, right? That they were eliminated um, through all-out warfare or that they came under the purview, right, of the federal government in a very, very violent manner. Um, And so the thinking was we needed a representation of that, you know, uh, idea of savage land, right? That was controlled, that was conquered, that was colonized here on the East Coast in in Washington. Um, and that's how they designed the bridge um, with those images. But the story that's not told and that I like to tell, right, of what could be, um, you know, a, a deeply problematic and, and racist depiction um, is that we can use a, you know, sort of counter reading of that story when we actually learn who that native person is, right? And when we learn about the native person whose likeness they used, um, we learn that that was a man by the name of Kicking Bear, that he was a tribal leader that traveled to Washington, D.C. as part of a political delegation representing the political issues of his community, that he came here, um, he met with political representatives, he um, also connected with the Smithsonian. And when he did that, that was where um, they took uh, essentially a mold, right, a cast of his face and bust. And they left that cast then in the museum holdings and archives for years before it was eventually dug out and used to design and adorn this bridge. Um, And when we think about, you know, sort of the intended narrative of this bridge, of this architectural feature, um, you know, we can contrast that with then a reading that says, you know, what does it mean when an attempt to celebrate colonization is met with the replication of, you know, a strong and fierce, um, you know, indigenous leader who was representing indigenous issues as his community was facing extreme violence under colonization, right? Um, And, you know, there's, there's no plaque that talks about that. And that's why I like to have a combination of both a digital humanities tool like the mobile application so that everyone can learn about this, as well as pairing it with something like a traditional book and monograph so that people who want to learn more and take that, um, you know, public facing or digital work to the next level and actually do a deep dive. You start in the introduction by telling us, and the theme weaves through in your thesis, that Washington, D.C. is the political capital of Indian country. Can you share that thesis with listeners? Sure. Um, So the book is really organized um, in a similar way to the mobile application in the sense that I'm highlighting a series of 
sites of indigenous significance across Washington, DC. Um, so the first point that I really want to relay to listeners is that, you know, Washington, DC is native land. Um, you know, as the capital of the United States, um, Washington, DC is not a place where we think about native folks, right? Um, we think about the West, like what I just talked about with Dumbarton Bridge. Um, we have that sort of idea uh, that Native people are, as one person um, wrote to me, you know, they said, I didn't, I didn't know where Native people were in this country, but I just knew that they were out of sight and out of mind and somewhere out there on reservations, right? Um, and for me, that, that, illuminates much of what the public tends to think about when we think about Native folks. We know they're around, maybe, <laughs> but we don't necessarily know where they are. Um, and so I, I want to make sure that people know that Washington, D.C. is Native land. Um, it is the traditional ancestral homeland of the Piscataway people, um, the Nacochank and Anacostian people, um, and it's also an indigenous place in the sense that we have a very strong and vibrant and diverse indigenous urban diaspora here. Um, so native people like Kicking Bear, right, um, who have come from all across the country uh, to do work on behalf of their tribal communities, um, precisely because Washington, D.C. is the nation's capital. Um, and that also leads to uh, a main point of the book, my thesis that Washington, D.C. is the political capital of Indian country. And the way that I arrived there is um, by, by thinking about that legacy, right, of tribal delegations coming um, and traveling from, again, you know, the, the far corners of the nation to Washington, D.C. to make their issues known, to meet with the president, to meet with um, the Department of the Interior, right? Whatever agencies um, it is that they need to consult with um, and make their their dealings and their business with. Um, but we also have a political action. We know that not all political action is just in politics or um, in law, but it's also through advocacy and through activism. And so we also see Washington, D.C. emerge as this central point where Native people from, again, you know, all different tribal backgrounds come together and unify around shared issues. Um, for example, you know, the Standing Rock movement, um, the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline or Keystone XL Pipeline would be a great example, right? Native people from all over the country and in many cases all over the world as well, they come here um, to collectively organize, to hold their demonstrations, to participate in marches, um, to talk and strategize with one another, right, across those geographic and spatial and, um, you know, in some cases, cultural or tribal divisions, right? Um, Washington, D.C. becomes a central place for that type of um, indigenous activism and organizing as well. And so it's really through that combination um, that I'm proposing that we can understand Washington, D.C. 
not only as the political capital and and the capital of the United States, but also um, the political capital of Indian country, Indian country referring to, um, you know, collectively uh, tribal nations at large as well. Towards the end of the book, you share with us about the Red Road to D.C., and you describe many of the carvings on totem poles that they carried. Would you share that with us, please? Yes. Um, so the Red Road to D.C. was one of these indigenous activist um, events, right, that that transpired. And again, we see Washington, D.C. emerge as really um, a culminating spot because these activists caravaned um, all across the the United States to different sacred sites in different tribal communities, and then um, came to Washington, D.C. as well. Um, and the first thing that I'll say about this is that um, it's interesting that, you know, this is not the first or only type of indigenous activist um, effort that has taken shape in this way. So in the 1970s, for example, we also have the Trail of Broken Treaties, which saw Native activists travel, um, you know, from the West Coast all throughout the country, stopping at different, um, you know, Native nations um, and different urban areas as well, collecting steam and gathering support before a re- before finally coming to Washington, D.C. Um, for their ultimate meeting. And so, uh, again, we have Washington, D.C. emerge as this sort of political action capital for Native people. Um, But with the Red Road to D.C. specifically, one of the things that they did was they brought a totem pole that was carved by the House of Tears Carvers, Um, located in the Pacific Northwest with the Lummi community. And um, they they brought this uh, poll in honor of Deb Holland, who was um, made at that time, very recently, uh, the head of the Department of the Interior, right? So Secretary of the Interior, um, which is very significant because she is the first Native person to um, sit on that executive level um, within the presidential cabinet, um, but also the first Indigenous person to oversee this department that oversees Indigenous affairs on a federal level. And um, within the poll itself, we also have carvings of, um, you know, many political indigenous issues that shape and affect um, a variety of our communities. So we have, for example, um, a part of the carving that is addressing um, migrant children at the U.S.-Mexico border and the way that those children were incarcerated and separated from their families. And the fact that those children, um, although coming from other countries, right, and and seeking entry into the United States, um, you know, many of those children were also indigenous, right? And a lot of indigenous activists found resonance between 
that story and that struggle and that plight with uh, boarding school history here in the U.S., where Native American children were systematically separated from their parents, um, from their extended families, from their tribal communities at large, and um, sent and institutionalized in boarding schools with the goal of assimilation into Euro-American society, right? The loss of tribal language, um, the loss of an indigenous identity, the loss of cultural and spiritual practices, um, and replacing all of that with um, the Euro-American norm, right? Um, And so, you know, that's one example of really the ways in which the dots get connected through this project. Um, you know, amongst tribal communities, we oftentimes hear people say, you know, we're all connected, we're all related. And I would say the same thing is true with our issues, you know, and that's a message I, I try to tell my students and people who I talk to about um, Indigenous issues is that you know, these, these topics don't just exist in a vacuum, right? The same way we can have a contemporary issue like, um, you know, immigration and um, these children who were, you know, incarcerated at the U.S.-Mexico border, um, you know, that holds resonance with Native communities and boarding school histories, right? And the form of activism, the Red Road to D.C., you know, looking so similarly to something like the trail of broken treaties. Um, It's interesting too, you know, that totem pole um, that was brought on the red road to DC and, you know, delivered here to Depp Holland. um, It also uh, is connected to another site of indigenous significance in Washington, DC, which is the Liberty and freedom totem poles, which sit in the Congressional Cemetery. And those totem poles were carved by the same carving group, the House of Tears Carver from the Lummi Nation. And those poles were brought here um, in a similar caravan all across the country, receiving prayers and blessings from different tribes before finally arriving here. Um, And they were carved in honor of those who lost their lives in the September 11th. terrorist attacks. Now, interestingly, also those polls were placed um, and they continue to sit on public view in the Congressional Cemetery. And the Congressional Cemetery has about two dozen tribal delegates and their family members who are buried there. Those delegates, again, came to Washington, D.C. to do that political advocacy work. And so you can really see, right, um, how each of these sites is in some way connected to another, right? They don't exist in a vacuum. And um, that's one of the things that's been really rewarding about doing this work. And also, I think something that's very beautiful about the project and and the way that it reflects um, really that indigenous perspective that we are all related and that all things are connected as well. What do you want people to know about Native Americans today? One thing I want everyone to know um, about Native peoples today is that we are, um, you know, here and now. Um, When we pick up a book 
like Indigenous DC or any other book about Native peoples, um, I want people to not assume that that's a history book. Um, I want people to know that, um, you know, as much as we talk about Native history, we also need to talk about the Native present. Um, We need to talk about our ongoing issues, um, which are deeply connected and deeply informed by history, but very much affecting, um, you know, people who are living here and now. And that also, equally important, um, they affect the future generations, right? Um, You know, it doesn't stop with even today, right? All of these issues and topics continue to affect um, the generations that are coming after us. And so, you know, it's part of a larger mythology to think about Native peoples as part of the past. And when we do that, um, you know, we're, we're really participating in an ideology um, about Indigenous erasure and about the idea that, okay, you know, um, just because colonization took place, uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't Native people anymore, right? Um, and it, it's easier and more convenient to think in terms of um, history because, um, you know, it... it in some ways alleviates you from having to think about how that history continues to reverberate to today and into the future. And so um, that's, that's something I want everyone to know about Native peoples, Native topics, Native issues, is that we are very much here um, and now in 2023, and we'll continue to be here. And I would say related to that, um, because we're here everyone, Native, non-Native, no matter what your area of work is, no matter what your background is, everyone can participate in being an ally to Native peoples and having a role in shaping a positive Indigenous future. Um, And you can do that by, you know, supporting things like tribal sovereignty, following Supreme Court decisions um, that have, you know, huge implications uh, for our nation's Um, so yeah, we're here and you can be involved in supporting our issues because we're here today. What comes next for you and for this project? So like I said, um, the guide to indigenous DC is not the only mobile application. Um, we have the guide to indigenous Baltimore, the guide to indigenous Maryland, all of those fall under the umbrella of the Guide to Indigenous Lands Project. And so I have several additional mobile applications in the works, um, you know, raising awareness about Native places, um, Native sites of significance across different states, cities, tribal territories. My ultimate goal is to have um, one of these mobile applications for every a place and community that would like one. Um, and so that's that's something that's immediately on the horizon. Um, interestingly enough, I, I also have another book project in the works right now that's quite different. Um, you know, as I was talking about when I was um, speaking about the origins of this project, you know, in many ways, I didn't set out... Um, 
you know, to, to write this book, um, in the same way that I didn't necessarily set out to make these mobile applications. But what happened was I saw an immediate need, um, from the people around me and I, I took action, right. And that action grew and developed first into the app, then into the book, um, into the additional apps as well. But, I have then a very different scholarly project um, that looks at gender-based violence and reproductive justice for Indigenous women in the U.S. and Canadian contexts. And so um, that, that project is also something I'm working on right now. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? I hope um, that people will be inspired to learn more about um, the native lands that they live on, that they work on, that they engage with, um, and to expand that to not only thinking about um, the land and the geography and the space, but also to think about the communities that are nearby. Um, As much as this book is concerned with talking about Washington, D.C. as an indigenous place, Really, Washington, D.C. stands in for the United States at large because it's our capital. And in that sense, right, all of the United States is indigenous land. There are indigenous peoples that have um, connections to all of this territory. And there are native peoples in every, you know, urban metropolitan center, even when we don't always think about um, them in those spaces or, you know, don't always have indigenous peoples come to the forefront of our minds. Um, And so I I would just encourage people to um, think more about the native places and peoples around them. What would you like to see going forward? Well, like I like I spoke to briefly as well. Um, you know, one of my main goals is that this book is not just um, it's not just a book, right? It's not something that people just pick up and read and put down and go about their lives. Um, I, I really hope that it encourages people to think differently about how they can also um, be involved. Um, how they can be an ally to Native communities if, if they're not part of a Native community already. And um, one of the ways that they can do that is to, you know, support tribal sovereignty, um, to learn about the lands, right, that they live on and the communities um, who have special and historical and ancestral ties to that place. Um, I would encourage everybody to follow a Native news outlet right? Wherever you get your news. Um, We have incredible Native journalists out there who can keep you up to date on breaking issues affecting our communities. To think about Native peoples when you um, participate in politics in your own community, right? Is there Native representation? How can you support Native voices coming forward locally? Um, How can you support Native issues nationally? right? Um, With things like our Supreme Court justices and the decisions that they make. Um, So really, uh, holistically, to think about Native peoples and our issues today and how you can support um, by, by supporting our tribal communities. 
Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Elizabeth Rule, and sharing with us from your new book, Indigenous DC, Native People and the Nation's Capital. This is The Academic Life, and I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, hoping you will please join us again.